For those of you who don't know, we've been doing a series. We've been in Matthew for like the last, I don't know how long, year and a half, and in the summer we took a break, and we're doing what's called Nuts and Bolts, and pretty much every summer we do Nuts and Bolts, which is kind of like Christianity 101, uh, like why we're here, um, and it's just good reminders. Some people can call it vision casting, whatever. There's those, those, those things that we need to hear over and over again, because I don't know about you, but I have a really good forgetter. And so, like, I, I have to constantly be reminded of that, which is most important. And so, that's kind of what Nuts and Bolts is. Uh, so, Pastor Brent has been doing a four-part series on his subject, and Chad on his subject, and me on my subject, which is your favorite subject, evangelism. I know that you guys just can't wait to get out of bed in the morning and go share Jesus with people, right? Because you're Christians and you're obedient. And, um, no, we're all scared of that. Like, it's a hard one. And so, that's part of the reason uh, that, we're, that we're doing this series. Um, the first week, I wanted to establish, make sure that we all know and are fully convinced that it is the primary reason why we exist on earth. The church primarily exists on earth instead of just getting saved and then being zapped into glory and glorified. Why in the world does the Lord uh, leave the church here to go through what we go through and wrestle with what we wrestle through and deal with what we deal with? Well, it's because he is... He has uh, ordained us to be the primary means in which he calls out further. Uh, that's how he's building his kingdom and building his church is primarily through the proclaiming of the gospel of those who have been saved. So we have been called out in order to call out further. Uh, we established that first. The second uh, 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 sermon that I talked about um, uh, as a result of that being established is then our gospel disposition right, which is that we, like Jesus, would be um, adjustable, and we'd be um, accessible, and we'd be approachable as gospel, gospel carriers. That's our gospel disposition. Today is number three. This one is the one that a lot of you have been waiting for because it's going to be more of the practicalities. This is kind of more just like grassroots. What does it look like when sharing uh, Jesus? And um, this is going to be very brief. Um, I don't have a text. Usually we have a text that we, um, that we go off of and we uh, do an exposition on. I don't have that today. Um, this is just going to be all over the place. It's going to be bullet points, and I'm going to be moving through them fast. So if you like taking notes, um, take notes fast. Uh, otherwise, you can go back and uh, you can hear it. It gets recorded uh, if everything goes right, and you can go back and you can access it and you can get all the information uh, that you need, but we're going to be moving fast today um, through um, eight of these um, evangelistic, we'll just call them practicalities, um, and most of these are going to be for you. Uh, most of these, you, you, you might even be disappointed when I'm done and be like, really? Like I wanted, I wanted something more than that, um, but this is all you're going to get. Um, we, we must know, first and foremost, that our evangelistic interactions, when it comes right down to it, do not have a formula. There is no formula. I cannot give you something right now, a secret handshake or, you know, some magic words that you can go out and say that's going to get a positive response uh, to your evangelistic interactions. I don't have it. It does not exist. When it comes to evangelism, there is no uh, formula. Um, evangelistic interactions are not predictable. I don't know how many of them you've had. I've had a few over the years. You cannot predict what's going to be said or how things are going to be responded to, or where it's going to go. Like, there's just no way to know, right? So you just got to grab hold of the back bumper of, of the car that Jesus is driving and hope that you, you hold on. 
uh, during these experiences. Um, we, we, we cannot merely attempt to follow a desired checklist of repetition in the attempt to guarantee a desired outcome. Anything and everything in an interaction may happen and will happen, may be said and will be said, okay? Um, what I'm going to attempt to give you today are what I found to be the safest, most general practicalities that I can give you um, as far as things that you can aim for or should aim for in your evangelistic interactions. This, by the way, is, this is only eight of them. It's by no means exhaustive. Like, there's, there's, there's so much more that can be added to this, and I would encourage you to go home and add to this, okay? Number one, let's just jump right into it, prep. Prep. And what I mean by prep is daily prep. Um, question for you, Christian, how do you start your day? How do you start your day? How do you set your mind um, every single day? Or, or do you? Um, I'll be the first to admit that there's days when I know I've got stuff that I've got to do. I've got a full schedule. I've got people to see. I feel overwhelmed from the second I get out of bed, and all I'm doing is thinking of how I'm going to get through everything, and I don't prep my day as far as identifying who I belong to and why I exist. That's what we're talking about here. Okay? Do you go to something each morning that establishes who you are? Do you go to something each morning that establishes who you belong to? Do you know why you belong to God? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? This is the best thing that you and I can do. And this needs to happen sometimes multiple times a day. Be good at preaching the gospel to yourself. This will recalibrate you no matter how far you've gone. I promise you. Do you know, as a result of these things, what your mission is each day? The Christian ought to begin each day by calibrating our hearts and our minds according to our God-given purpose and identity. Prayer does this. Starting with prayer is a simple way. It helps us to calibrate and, and to establish our identity, who we belong to, why we exist, right? Uh, Bible reading obviously does this if you read your Bible in the mornings. Um, this is where I would find my mom. You know? um, if you don't know my mom, she's an amazing woman. I, I'm convinced that she prayed me out of hell um, years ago, four years. And um, I would find her in the breakfast nook every single morning of my entire life since my earliest memories, Bible straight open, just drinking it up, just lapping it up, right? What a, what a great way for us to start our day and to calibrate ourselves. A daily devotional can do this, right? Gospel-centered worship music playing in the background while you do your house things and you get ready for the day, that can, that can do this. These things are good because they can awaken us um, in our awareness, our need, our dependence, our reliance, our meaning, our purpose underneath the God of the universe is Jesus' followers, right? One of the best passages that we can actually turn our attention to each morning is Ephesians chapter 6. You guys are familiar with this one, right? We have this thing called armor there. And, and if you look at that passage in Ephesians 6, like I, I think you would agree that this isn't a one-and-done deal. Like you put this thing on, and then you're good for the rest of your existence. Like th this is a daily thing that you and I need to dress into. And in a sense, it's the Christian dress code, 
like every single day, right? Like it, 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 uh, Ephesians 6 walks us through armoring up, uh, which is not a once-for-all thing. This is a daily dress-up. And guess what the third piece of armor is? Does anybody know? You get bonus points if you do. Gospel, right? As shoot, I'm, I just turned 50. I can't hear nothing. I can't see nothing. I'm sorry. I'm sure you guys all had the right answer. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of, of peace. This is the third piece of armor that we dress into. Well, what does this mean? What do shoes do? What are shoes used for? For moving. For being mobile. For taking something somewhere. Right? And this is the third piece of armor. This means that, that we resist, in a sense. Check this out. This is trippy. We resist and we fight Satan by being a gospel-minded, gospel-purposed people. I don't know if we ever think of it in those terms that the gospel is that great of a weapon against our biggest enemy and adversary, the gospel, right? Uh, we, we, we put it on ourselves, for ourselves, to protect ourselves, and then we, because uh, it's, it's shoes for our feet, carry it to others. We carry it to others. It means, ironically enough, that this warfare that we're in every single day that, 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 uh, that we fight with brings peace to others, right? That's interesting that you would, you would fight something in warfare with something that brings peace. Kind of seems backwards, right? Jesus was referred to as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace, right? Ephesians 6 tells us that our fight also is not against other human beings. Oh, people, we need to know this. And I know that you hear it from your probably like, here he goes again. I know I talk about this a lot, and I feel, I feel like it's because we fall short a lot as Christians, as the people of God, with this one. If you look at Ephesians 6, we do not fight against flesh and blood. Human beings, Democrats, communists, Right? We fight against the one who is in high places above and over those things. That's who our fight is with. That's who our enemy is. Right? This matters for us to know. Knowing and acknowledging these things preps us every single day as we approach it as gospel-minded people. It will change who we go to, where we go to. Right? So it's good for us to, to, to know this. So, so the, the, the gospel for us, um, if, I was to, if I'm to put it simply, as, as far as prep work, is like the Christian smelling salt, right? I don't know what kind of sports you're into. I'm one of those whack jobs that likes hockey. Um, I can't hardly find anyone else that does. I love hockey. I watch hockey every year, right? These guys are just like full, these guys are athletes, all right, in like every way. The sport is kind of brutal. It's super fast, um, and, and yet it takes uh, finesse and good uh, hand-eye coordination and all, like these dudes are athletes, right? But if you look at how fast and how intense this sport is, you almost kind of think to yourself, like how in the world do they get geared up to like go into a game, right? And so what you'll see on a televised game is these guys come out of the locker room and they'll sit on the bench, the national anthem will be going or whatever, and these guys are, you know, you can, you can see them, they're jumpy and they're passing the smelling salt down the line. And I love when the camera like, like pans in so you can see their reactions, <laughs> like, like these big, like tough, brutal dudes are getting like brutalized by this smelling salt. Like that stuff's gnarly and it just wakes them up and they're ready to go. 
that's how they get ready for a game like that, right? So, so like the gospel for you and the gospel for me every single morning is like the Christian smelling salt. Like that's kind of what, it wakes us, it gets the blood pumping, it gets, it, it gets the heart beating fast so that we're ready to get into the game, all right? Does that make sense? Good. Number one, we start each day by establishing our identity so that we will move through each day gospel ready that is prepped. That is number one. Number two, engagement. This means not only to be ready at all times right where you are, right in what you find yourself doing, but also to go where they are. This is the hard part for us, and I know you hear me talk about this too. We need to be willing, be ready to go where they are. Matthew 4.18, we find Jesus call his first disciples. Anyone know their names? Extra points. I won't hear it, but you can shout it out if you want to. Peter and Andrew, right? Guess where they were? Guess what they were doing? They were at work. They were fishing at work. Guess what Jesus did in order to call them? He went to their workplace. He went down to the sea. He went to their boat. He went to where they worked, and he called them. And here's what he said to them. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then guess where he took them? Everywhere. Everywhere. They did not stay there, local, around the sea. They didn't stay on those shores, right? Jesus went everywhere. Towns, villages, countryside, wells, everywhere. <laughs> Mountaintops. He went to where people were. Wherever men were, Jesus went, right? And, and, and by the way, this is probably the biggest, this is probably the biggest challenge that we have when it comes to um, the social gospel, um, I'm sorry, not the social gospel, the seeker-sensitive church. My brain's already going somewhere else. The seeker-sensitive church. Um, I talked about this um, a couple weeks ago, that there's, there's a, a good kind of being seeker-sensitive, and there's a bad kind. But do you want to know really where the church started specializing in being seeker-sensitive? It's in not wanting to go to where others are. So we go ahead and we fashion ourselves and we dress ourselves up and we start employing things in the church that will bring them to where we are. That's where it comes from. And when you look at it like that for what it is, it sucks. It's getting us out of doing what we should be doing, right, and makes things really easy on us. I got an idea. Let's, let's, not, even, let's not even bother with going there. Let's just do things that will be appealing enough that they will come to us. Sounds kind of bad when you put it like that. But that's, what, that's, really, that's really where it started to come from back in the day. Um, think about this with Jesus for a minute. Jesus, being a fisher of men, never sat around waiting, waiting for fish to jump into his boat, right? Like he never did that. Instead, he, he went to each fishing hole, and he cast his line out. He engaged with all people where they were at, where they were found. Having said that, every Christian should have a Samaritan well. You want to be an evangelist? Have a Samaritan well. Do you know what that is? It's a place you're not supposed to go that contains people you're not supposed to go to so that you may give them something they do not deserve. Right? That's what a Samaritan well is. Every single Christian should have one. And, and this could, like, this is so easy. This is the easy part. Once you actually decide, like, okay, I'm going to have a Samaritan well that I'm going to go ahead and and invest myself in, like, 
I, I'm sure that your options are limitless. Some of you like to work, some of you go to gyms, right? Some of you may, may like to just go to coffee shops, some of you may go to garage sales. Some, like, it's, it's limitless as far as just average places where you find average people that need Jesus. And then you commit to it. You go there. You get to know people that are there, right? We should all have at least one fishing hole that we frequent at regularly. The majority of our lack of gospel opportunities are a direct result of us not going to where they are. It can be fixed immediately if we just do it, right? So if you want some gospel interactions, find a Samaritan well. Engage. Number three, humility. This one sucks. Um, this is like the, 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 uh, this is one of the hardest ones, but it's the most critical ones as well for us as believers. Humility is the posture of the gospel carrier. It has to be. Not self-righteousness, not superiority, not stuffiness, humility. Humility. We, we cannot think that we're better in, than them. In fact, we must know that we are not. We are not. This allows us to not come off as self-righteous or judgmental, to know so. We can be a confident people. We can be a certain people about the gospel that we're presenting while maintaining a humility that keeps us from getting in the way. Do not be a jerk for Jesus. Lots of people like to go out and do that and go, I made that person mad. I guess I'm just, you know, suffering persecution. No. What's offensive, Jesus says, is the message itself. Not the messenger. Don't be a jerk for Jesus. If the message offends somebody, that's fair game. That's between them and God. But you and I are to have a posture of humility when we approach people, when we speak to people, when we love people, so that we can love people, right? One of the best ways that we can display humility, there's a few of them, evangelistically, as well as be extremely effective with the gospel opportunity is by not hesitating to take every opportunity to admit our own sinfulness. This is huge. This is where things are going to start to get a little more practical for you. Hopefully this is helpful. I don't know if you've ever done this, but do you have any idea how this shapes the conversation when you do this? When you are the one in that conversation that admits your own shortcomings your own sin, your own fault, the, way the ways that you have fallen short of the standards of God's righteousness yourself. Show them your own depravity. Acknowledge it. It's amazing what that does. If you want to be an effective evangelist, be a good and open confessor. Yes, even to a stranger. It's amazing what this does. Acknowledge to them your acknowledgement of your personal spiritual deficit. Part of being humble in a gospel conversation is knowing that it's okay to not have all the answers. This is another way that humility helps us. It's okay to not have all the answers. We are not here to win an IQ test. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter how smart you are. The name of the game is not to win the argument. It is to win the soul. And we win souls by being humble. By even when we're asked that question that stumps us, and I've done this so many times where people will bring a question, it's like, gosh, I've never thought about that before. Like, that's a really good question. And I used to get so discouraged, right? 
thinking like, oh my gosh, I blew it. I failed because I don't have the answer to that. No, I learned that it's freeing and it's okay for us to at that point go, you know what? I haven't really thought of that. Let me get back to you. That actually says a lot about us. That we're not just know-it-alls who have checked our brains at the door, that are willing to win an argument or a fight at any cost, but that we're just an honest people, a humble people that don't have all the answers or haven't thought through everything, it actually goes in our favor. Not only does it display humility to do that, it gives us an excuse to reconnect with that person. You know what I'm saying? Like, let me go look into that, I'll get back to you. And a lot of times, those people will get back to you. And you're off and running again, maybe, maybe even long term. Another way that humility helps us in our evangelism, or the reason why we need to maintain it, is um, because most of our evangelistic interactions are not going to end well. They're not going to end well. So we need to approach our, 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 our evangelistic opportunities with humility, right? We need to be in the midst of those with humility. And then we need to make sure that if this thing shuts down, we're still humble. Because most of them are not going to end well. Most of them are not going to end well. Um, most people that I have shared the gospel with um, did not fall under their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? That's what, that's what I wish they would do. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying for. Very few. In fact, maybe once in my lifetime was it, was it like that clean where someone just fell down and went, let's do it like, I'm all in. I'm all in. Most of them don't, don't happen that way. Most of our evangelistic interactions will end in denial and rejection. Rejection. And it's easy for us to take it personally when it does. It's easy for us to feel like failures when it does. It's easy for us to feel like we blew it or we did something wrong when it does. Or, or it's even easy for us to get upset back at them because they're upset at us. This is the hard part for me. Like, I, I, don't, I don't do that well when someone's coming at me or, or degrading me or ripping me apart, right? Like, I'm just too prideful for that, you know? And so I'll, I'll usually start to kick back a little bit, right? Uh, understand this. Understand this. When rejection or nastiness occurs in a gospel interaction, it will not be abnormal. It will actually be normal. It will be normal. Jesus says this to his disciples. I got to go to a church a few weeks ago and preach on this text, which I didn't want to preach on, and now I love it. And, um, and it's found in Luke 21. Listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples basically the first time he's unpacking what it's going to look like to be gospel carriers for him. You ready? Luke 21. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they're going to lay their hands on you and they're going to persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be, listen to this, this will be your opportunity to witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You ready for the next part? It just gets worse. 
You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. Here's the punchline. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is what we've signed up for. You know what I'm saying? This right here is what we've signed up for, and it seems like all we try to do throughout our entire Christian lives is find ways to not have this happen. So we go quiet, and we don't have Samaritan wells, and we don't ever open our mouths to people who desperately need to hear what you have to say because we like ease, and we like comfort, and we hate persecution and bad vibes and rejection, but that's exactly what Christ has promised you if you follow him and carry the gospel. This is what he's promised us right here. What this means is that when you are denied or rejected or make a new enemy, do not get angry. Do not get angry. This is normal. <laughs> this is normal. Do not be discouraged. Do not grow cold. Do not stop proclaiming Christ. Remain humble, remain hopeful, knowing full well that Jesus has promised us that the gate to him is narrow and the gate to destruction is wide. This is not a surprise. This is something we've clearly been told. When we testify for his name's sake, the world will cancel us. They will cancel us. The challenge then becomes for the Christian to not cancel the world back, right? If you notice in that Luke 21 passage that I read, there, there's like, sub, obviously there's things missing, but this one thing missing as he's going through all this, and that's the part where he tells them they get to fight back, right? Like, everyone's going to hate you. It's only going to go bad. Have fun. There's never like a, 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 a point where it's like you can retaliate. You can get back at them. Like, that's absent because it flies in the face of everything that Jesus came and hung on the cross for. Everything. He's a prince of peace. He fights with peace. And you and I, same. We're, we, have, we are recipients of that peace. And we are now carriers of that peace. And so we fight with peace. Right? Makes sense? All right, good. Um, humility is important. Humility is important. The disciple of Jesus perseveres in attempting to master humility because our rejected Lord was a master of humility. Right? He bore the cross on his back after he got canceled, and he took it up the hill, and while dying, he looked out at the crowd, and he maintained, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Number four, be a good interviewer. Okay, this is extremely practical. I think this, this matters. Obviously, none of these things are completely necessary because God can do whatever the heck he wants with very few words from us. But be a good interviewer. Learn how to be a really good interviewer. In other words, ask a lot of questions about them. Ask them a lot of questions. Again, about them. Be really good at gathering information about them. Right? This is, this is not intrusive, 
And it's not annoying because 99.9% .9 of the people in this world love to talk about themselves more than anything else. It's their favorite subject. So they're going to be just fine with it. And, and, and wouldn't you know, at the same time, it shows them that you care. It shows them that you care. It shows that you're interested in them. And shouldn't we be? Like, shouldn't we be? Uh, me and Carrie went to the fair in Redmond a couple of weeks ago. I only go for the, um, the curly fry loaves that are smashed together. Um, <laughs> otherwise, they can have it. But there was like these, the phone stands everywhere were like the cellular phone stands were like US Cellular and Verizon and um, all of those. And I would clearly walk by these things uninterested, like clearly like 10 feet away, look in the other direction, like whistling, like, don't bother me. And someone in every single one of these was like, come over here and da -da -da -da, we got this plan for like, like these people wanted to take me home. You know what I mean? Before they even took me to dinner first. You know what I mean? Come and sign my book. I was just another number to them. You know what I'm saying? How rude. How impersonal. Like how annoying. Like I was over before we ever got started on anything. I was done. Uh, please don't be like that as, a, as, as an evangelist for Jesus. Uh, don't be that way with people. People are not another number, right? Don't just try to get someone to repeat after you and say the prayer and then get on about your business as, you know, so you can check that off the list. Like, care about the person in front of you. Let your heart be provoked by the Spirit of God when you look at them. These are people that have value and worth and meaning in the eyes of the creator, the one who created them. So you should care and I should care. Um, one of the ways that we can do this best is by asking questions about them. The other reason that this is super important for us to do is because the information that we gather will aid us greatly in knowing, deciding, discerning which path we should take to get them up the mountain to the cross. People come from different places. They have different backgrounds. They've had different experiences, growing up in different religions, right? Um, th this is not a bad thing to do. Again, Paul in Athens, I'll take his cue. He goes into that place, what does he do? He looks around and gathers as much information as he possibly can to tell him about these people. And then when he gets to open his mouth and he has a platform and he has their ear, he takes them to the cross in a way that makes sense to them. That's all we're talking about. That's all we're talking about. Right? Um, not only is this effective for our evangelism, it makes an otherwise awkward conversation more natural. Like, just ask questions about people. Be interested, you know? Our ability to collect information is one of the greatest tactics that we have. Number five, the gospel itself. All right? Um, I didn't even feel like I needed maybe to include this, and then I realized I really did. Do you know what the gospel is? If we're talking about evangelism and evangelistic interactions, this is what it all comes down to. Do you know the gospel? Right now, someone walks up to you and says, what's the gospel? How would you do? Would you be able to answer that? What would you say without fumbling around or taking 45 minutes to do it? Would you be able to say what the gospel is? Do you know what the gospel is? Almost as important, uh, do you know what the gospel isn't? 
um, <clears throat> do you have a handle on the simplicity and the heart of what the gospel is? If you do not, I'm going to help you. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose on the third day. That's the gospel. I think anybody can wrap their hands around that and grab hold of it. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That he died for our sins, was buried, and then rose. That's it. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the good news for the nations. It is utterly simplistic, and yet it is vast in its implications. It is deep, and it is wide. First and foremost, just with this one little statement here, right? It implies that we are sinners. We are sinners. It's in there. That sin is the problem and that which we need to be saved from. It implies that Jesus was a stand-in for us, a substitute, the righteous one, undeserving of the punishment. It implies that the wages of sin is death. This is why humans die. I don't know about you, I hate death. I don't like it. I don't think you do either. This is why it exists. It's because of sin in the world. Right? The wages of sin is death. It implies that Jesus was really dead after his crucifixion. Why would, it, why, would it, why would it even include that he was buried? Who cares? Like, isn't that a given? No. You ever talk to a Muslim? They believe that, that Jesus was real, but he was a prophet. And you know how they explain his life after his death? He never really died. He never really died. They're not the only ones who think this, okay? I want to tell you something right now. Romans were experts in killing people. They were experts at putting people on the cross, and they did not take them down until they full well knew they were dead. Romans, experts. It was like, it was like art for them. It was a hobby. Jesus was really dead. And... Uh, Paul includes that here. It's interesting. He wasn't kind of dead or partially dead or mostly dead. Fully dead. This statement implies that death could not hold Jesus. Death could not hold him. Death was defeated by him. It did not have the final say, but Jesus did. He triumphed over death. That's found in this text. And because he triumphed over it, all those whose sins he took upon himself will triumph over it also by faith. By faith. This is the gospel. This is the good news for all. This is the hope of the nations. Having said that, let me tell you what the gospel is not, real quick. Okay? Come to Jesus and he will make your life better. <laughs> so I'm serious. Come to Jesus and he will fix your problems. Come to Jesus and you will have the power to do weird and wonderful things. Come to Jesus and you will be rewarded with miraculous experiences all the time. Come to Jesus and you will be happy all the time. Come to Jesus and the pain will stop being pain and the hardship will stop being hardship and the suffering will stop being suffering and the grief will stop being grief and loss will stop being loss. Come to Jesus and you will escape the coming distress upon the earth. No. Come to Jesus because he is your only hope. Come to Jesus because you have a sin problem. 
and we stand before a God who hates sin. Come to Jesus who was crushed by God so that you may not have to be. That's what this is all about. Come to Jesus because you're a great sinner in need of a great Savior. And you know what? We have one. We have one. There's already an ongoing epidemic of false, ear-tickling, sissified gospels that float around the face of the earth. And my prayer is that nobody from this church ever goes out and adds to that cancer. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. You do not promise anything else. That alone is the good news to a sinner. That is the gospel. That is one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is at. Which brings us to number six. The law. L-A-W, sorry. The law. Good news is never good news to people who are not aware or convinced that there is bad news first. Ever. In order for good news to be good news, it requires bad news. A hope for a cure requires an illness. A way out requires an entrapment. Know when to apply law and know when to apply gospel when you are having a conversation. And here's the difference between the law and the gospel. You ready? One condemns, one saves. That's the difference. The law condemns people. The gospel saves people. Both are absolutely necessary. Both are absolutely necessary. The reason this matters is because most people that you will talk to think that they are good. This is, this is the great hurdle for people to cross, the chasm for people to cross when you're sharing Jesus. They think they're okay. And if they are, why the heck do they need a cure? The law will assure them that they need one. That there is a problem. Anyone ever watch uh, Way of the Master? Ray Comfort? Right? Um, I don't. He's a little too formulaic for me, okay? Um, where it's kind of like ding, ding. Like it almost looks sometimes like he's just trying to get through this. But it's really cool. You guys should all go check it out. This dude goes out like to college campuses and stuff like that. And he takes a camera and a microphone. And he literally allows us to be a fly on the wall with him evangelizing the people. And where he always goes, he always makes them take a test, Right? And that, and that test at some point, uh, which comes up during the conversation, is the Ten Commandments, where he'll go, we're going to take a test. Uh, let, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask you some questions, and you just answer, and we'll see how good you do at this test. And he walks through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever this? Have you ever that? Have you ever that? And most of them will be like, yeah, hey, I, I got six of them right, and uh, like four of them wrong. And, and this is really what we do. This is really what people do, is as long as in their mind, they think the scales are tipped more in their favor towards righteousness than in his bad things. They're still good with God. The problem is that's just not true. They're not still good with God. They need to know that if they've fallen short in one point of the law, they've fallen short in, in its entirety. They're done. It's over with. They, 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 people need to know that even their best works are not good enough. And the law does that. They need to know that even if they have fallen short in one point, they fall short in all points concerning God's standard and thus fail the test. They need to know that nothing less than 100% perfection, 100% of the time, will do. That's the standard. That's where the bar is set. Right? The law does this. 
Nobody gave us heavier, more brutal law than Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. For those of you who are with us when we preach through the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus is doing there, right? So he goes, hey, you remember the law of Moses? Like if, you know, dude committed adultery on his wife, like she could hand him a piece of paper and, and whatnot. And, uh, of course, at that point, you got a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees and religious leaders sitting around patting themselves on the back going, I've never done that one. I, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never committed adultery on my wife. And then G Jesus says, but, but I tell you that if you've ever lusted in your heart, you have. And then it's like, oh, gosh. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I fail that one, too. Okay, that's what the law does. It takes anything that we actually perceive as being good about ourselves and then kills it. The law is there to bury us. It is there to crucify us. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. His whole point is to bury those people that are listening to his sermon so that they are in just despair. Like, what do I do now? How, how, how does anybody have any hope? And then the gospel comes. Right? None. Law matters. Big time. Okay. Um, anyone ever use the Romans Road? It's like... It depends on your version of it, five or six verses through Romans. It's super helpful. Um, maybe we should put that out somewhere so that you guys can look at it. The first two verses that come up in the Romans Road are basically law. It starts there. It's supposed to start there. That's the way you set up good news is by starting with bad news. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Condemned. Everybody. Condemned. Right? Romans 6.23 comes next. The wages of sin is... That's the penalty. That's what, that's what we've earned for our, you know, our day of labor out in the field. For our good works, we've earned death because of our sin, right? So it starts with law, and then it brings you, it preps you, and then brings you into good news. Number seven, we'll move through, goodness gracious, we'll move through this faster. Closure, closure. Even if this thing goes bad, when you are done with an interaction or you think it goes bad, there is one more very effective way to leave a lasting impression, and that is prayer. And I'm not talking about having them pray with you or having them pray. I'm talking about you asking if you can pray for them. Even if it goes bad, like even if it seems a little bit sour, ask if you can pray for them before you leave, okay? Even if it's not for their salvation, but simply for their benefit. If you've done your job, as an evangelist up to this point, and you've asked a lot of questions, and you've interviewed them, you have a lot of information about them. So you have a lot of just simple, practical, helpful, caring things that you can pray for on their behalf. The reason that this is so powerful is because I don't care if they say they're an atheist or not, in that moment, if you take them before the Father in prayer, they know that something special is happening. They know that you're taking them before someone they're not allowed to be in front of. It's strong. So just ask if you can pray. I, out of all the times that I've left my interactions this way and I've asked, I've only had one person ever that said, like, are you kidding? Like, no. You know what I mean? Everyone else is just, just deer in the headlights. Like, they can't believe I'm asking. They can't believe we're about to go there. And I'm just like, well, yeah, let's go. And they're good with it. Well, partially because they're paralyzed, you know? <laughs> but they're sick they come along, you know? All right, good. Also, having to do with closure, be available going forward. 
be available going forward, allow for a possible reconnection in the future, a phone number, a card, an email address, an invitation to church, you know, something, something that will allow for a possibility of reconnecting in the future if they ever have questions or further considerations. This has happened to me before, guys, where I had some dude that I left a card with. It had probably been six months since the last time we had a gospel interaction. He was not pleased with me. He was not happy with me, um, but I think he knew that I cared about him and loved him. And this dude felt comfortable enough six months later to call me, and he was in tears when he did. I could hardly even understand what the heck he was saying um, because he was crying so hard. And I was just making out bits and pieces of it. And basically he was saying, I want to meet with you right now because it's real and I'm, I'm ready, I'm ready. And it's like, you already have, dude. You know what I mean? Like, we can meet right now, but, like, you've already been saved. You know, but yes, let's go ahead. And I was able to meet with this guy somewhere. And this, this dude just, he, he was all in. Jesus captured his heart. Six months earlier was that conversation. Okay. Um, it's funny that a lot of times when you read the book of Acts and you read some of those accounts that Paul will be out preaching somewhere to a large crowd. And um, when he's done, you'll see a comment in the text from the listeners that says something like this. Um, we will hear you again. We will hear you again. That's a good thing to hope for. It's a good thing to leave the door open for, that there may be another hearing, right? Not everyone, when Paul preached, was converted or convinced the first time. Some of them were the second time. Some of them were the third time, right? Um, my point is be willing to evangelistically commit to an investment rather than a drive-by, rather than just a hit-and-run. Look, Jesus saves people in hit and runs too. Like, like he, he, he's fine with doing that, but be open to an actual investment where you invest in somebody. It matters, and it goes places. Number eight, finally, don't forget the rest. Um, don't forget the rest because if you forget this part, you will stop evangelizing. What do I mean by that? I mean certainty and contentment in the sovereignty of God after every interaction. God is sovereign. And to know that is the only way that we will keep from growing weary and discouraged enough to quit doing it altogether. Rest in God's ability to save people. God's ability to save people. Know that this thing does not ultimately depend on you. It depends on Him. Oh gosh, let, let, let all that weight go from you. It it's, it's His skill doesn't depend on you. Listen to things like this that Jesus said, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Just think about that for a second. What does that mean? Was he lying? Or was he speaking a certainty that those who he died for, with God doing the giving, will come? Will in other words, God's not going to be sitting up there on the last day going, oh my gosh, I really wanted to save so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and -so, but they just wouldn't come. No, he's, it's certain that God is going to save to the utmost, fully and completely, all those who he's determined to save. And Jesus knew that. They're all going to, they're all going to come. Um, think certainty 
think sovereignty, think mission accomplished when you're done. I don't care how the interaction goes down. Think mission accomplished, whether it felt like it or not, whether it seemed like it or not, whether they openly accepted Jesus or not. Be okay with God's final say concerning each interaction because he's over every single one. A lot of people wonder why I wear the same stinking shirt every time I preach. Um, and by the way, I have um, multiple of these because <laughs> I am washing them at times. Um, there's this postal worker thing, right? I don't know why. Just for some reason, I thought I liked that. I like because all I'm doing is like, all I'm doing is handing you guys stuff that God's put in your inbox, right? Like I'm a stinking postal worker. I'm the same thing when I'm out there in an evangelistic interaction with somebody. I'm just, I'm just delivering mail that God has already put in their inbox. That's all that you're doing too. And here's the rad part is like, I don't know about yours, but like my, the people that deliver our mail, I'm, I'm pretty sure like, like 25% of what they put in my mailbox is like critical mail. And then like 75% of it is probably like garbage mail, like throwaway mail or like start your wood stove with it. But I seriously doubt that like those people go home at night and wonder if I'm doing the right thing with my critical mail. You know what I mean? Like, are they sleeping like babies or are they like just tripping out and losing sleep? Like, I hope this dude pays his mortgage bill. I know there was a mortgage bill in there. You know what I mean? Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Like, I, I think that people and their eternity and their souls are a little more important than mail that goes in our box. But at the same time, this is what the sovereignty of God does for us as postal workers with the gospel of Christ right? The sovereignty of God is a pillow for you and I to lay our heads on so that we can sleep at night, knowing that he is fully in control, that he knows exactly what he's doing, and that there's nothing that can stop his plan and his purpose and his determinate will towards those he is saving. If we can know this and we can settle this in our hearts and our minds, we can go out with confidence and talk to people. We can go out without fear and talk to people. We can go out with, with joy, even, even excitedly, to get into that next conversation, knowing that God will be God when it's over, and he will be God with that person. Lord God, thank you so much that you are completely trustworthy. And, and, and I thank you, Lord, that even though you could just be like, you are the one saving people. It's weird that you have ordained that we should be the ones that like walk that out to people. And so I, I thank you that we, we get to participate at all, that you have made us useful in kingdom things. Um, and so, so thank you that we get to be a part of it, God. I pray that we would be obedient. I pray that we wouldn't neglect such a great privilege and honor and opportunity have front row seats to, to seeing some people wake up for the first time and the final time because of the gospel of Christ. Help us to have a fire in us, God, to where, to where we cannot hold in the glories of the cross of Christ, to where we have to get it out. Make us anxious to get it out. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you that there was a time each of our lives when you sent somebody to us. And then you saved us. 
Help us, God, just to carry on that legacy. In Jesus' name.